0: We came for salvation, we came for family, we
1: came for all that's good, that's how we'll walk away. Aloha and thanks for listening to the Layman's Lounge podcast. Check out thelaymanslounge.com for more everyday theology for everyday life. I've been out of commission for like a month because we just, we, my wife just had um, our fifth child duke paul and so he's thriving he's a little bit yellow um so i've been out of it and i'm excited to talk today with jake meador who I, I read i read his book like months ago and we had like three reschedulings which that's only have ever only happened one other time so for sure that was Satan. Sighton didn't want us to talk but <laughs> it's happening now Um, He is the editor-in-chief of Mere Orthodoxy and a fourth-generation Nebraskan. And right before this, I Googled, I'm like, who is from Nebraska? And it's like all the Saddle Creek record guys. For anyone like my age will remember that, like Connor Over, some Bright Eyes, and Tim Kasher, and the Despacitos. I love that stuff. But also, who was the big one? Like one of those old names. Oh, Fred Astaire. I've never even heard Fred Astaire. I don't know if he's an actor or singer, but hit me with some, hit me with some like Nebraska, like this is Nebraska, man.
2: (laughs) Well, I mean, Johnny Carson is another one of the well-known Nebraska natives. He hosted the tonight show for like Mm -hmm. 40 years. He's the one who kind of made it famous Mm -hmm. Um, So the theater program at UNL, which is about a mile and a half down the road from me. Um, his name the johnny carson school of theater or something like that mm-hmm. um i'm trying to think um kool-aid was invented in nebraska okay so here's another one i mean really you just come to lincoln in the fall you go to a husker football game and then go hang out at an orchard awesome. afterwards and you've kind of got the like good at least lincoln experience what
1: is like what do you outside of like your sort of academic stuff and like what is and not even your hobbies what what does like life look like for you as you're out there and you know what even in the in in the context of christianity i would love to hear your christianity as it like intersects with your like your commute from a to b or like you and your wife you know or you know helping out your dad or whatever like what What kind of stuff is what's the fodder of your days that other than like writing or podcasting or
2: Mm. um well our kids are we have four kids and they're between two and nine right now ages so that keeps us plenty busy Mm. um but yeah i mean we're involved in a small local pca congregation here um lincoln's an odd spot church-wise Because, like, it's a Big Ten university town, Mm -hmm. 300,000 people, pretty booming tech scene right now. Mm -hmm. But in terms of, like, if you're an evangelical who's on board with infant baptism, the PCA is the only game in town. Like, there's no Anglicans out here. It's very weird. Wow. Uh, Historically, the city was just kind of Rockefeller Democrat type mainline Protestants. And then kind of MacArthurite Bible church fundamentalist types Mm. and all of the Protestantism in Lincoln's kind of grown out of one of those two things, Mm. um, except for the PCA, really, we were just super tiny for years and years and years. And over the last like 25 years, we've grown quite a bit. Um, but yeah, it's a weird scene church wise. Um, but in many other ways, it's very similar to like if you know Iowa City or I mean, imagine like St. Paul, Minnesota without the Twin Cities metro around it, just St. Paul, mm. you'd have the university town. I think St. Paul's like 400,000, mm. but university town, some banking, some tech, um, state capital. That's kind of the thing. Right.
1: You kids are, you said two to nine. Mine, yeah. are, mine are like. Well, besides the newborn, I think they're two to eight. And so my thought goes there too. What do you, like you want to pass on like of first importance, right? It's like you have to distill, you're like, you've got the window of their listening to you very limited. I'm curious what other parents, like What what's the thing, thing you hand or like you kind of like want them to get? For me, it's been actually sort of knee jerk reactions of what I grew up. And I'm like, I don't want them to get, I'm very curious to hear yours. <laughs> like, what are you trying to squeeze in?
2: It's a good question. Um, I think like if we get Lord's prayer, apostles creed, 10 commandments across, <laughs> hit all the kind of high points of Christian faith. Mm-hmm. Um. And I think, I guess things I've been thinking about lately is just, a uh, um, I want them to have a pretty thick idea in their head of what is natural, what the good life looks like. Ooh. I think we model that very imperfectly. Um, we're trying to kind of grow and learn my wife and I are and how we do some of these things, but, um, And I guess maybe another thing would just be um, a delight in beauty and like good craftsmanship, like whether that's in literature or cooking or painting or music, like helping them appreciate things that are well done and beautiful. Um, My daughter is doing, they have their end of year program at school tonight. And so Um, the students in her class are all reciting a poem that they've memorized. Mm. And so I kind of like nudged her toward this monologue from Merchant of Venice by um, Portia, it's about mercy. Um, The quality of mercy is not strained. And so she's actually memorized that and um, Mm. we've been been kind of reading Shakespeare stuff lately and having good conversations Mm. about what we're reading um before that we were reading some harry potter which also actually lends itself to some really mm-hmm. profound conversation if you're actually paying attention to the books
0: mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. um so in in many ways ah. trying to give to my kids what was given to me by my parents just a very simple faith a trusted wow. Jesus commitment to follow Christ no matter the cost um and I think if there is something, and, I, and my parents have said this in conversations we've had, like we were very, very fundamentalist when I was younger. And so in that world, there was never really like, why would you waste time reading literature when you could be reading your Bible or a Bible commentary or your devotional? Um, and mom has said she wished she had read more literature with me when I was growing up. Um, so that's one of the things that I've been trying to do with our kids. I'm reading Red Wall with the seven-year-old now and he's enjoying it, so um what what do you do if like you
1: you want them like you see the world through you know the truth you know of jesus god of the trinity you know and you see how everything comes together and they they probably no matter what since they're young they're still probably going to be pretty fragmented you know they don't maybe see how everything comes together and you know every square inch if you will how do you are you like laboring to like did you ever like that band page of the lion I'm not going to judge you if you didn't <laughs>
2: I listened to him a little bit not a ton
1: there's this line on this page of lion and the guy's a, an apostate now I think but yes. he had this good line back in the day and he's like you were so trying to sp- you were so busy who I don't know he's talking to some you know the songs to just general Christian guy you know might as well have been me in the nineties. So you were so busy trying to steer the conversation to the Lord that you couldn't hear the spirit saying, shut the F up. And I always thought that was a pretty good line. I was like, well, well played, sir. Anyways. And I find my life, I'm always kind of trying to steer the conversation of the Lord with my kids. Hmm. Um, Cause you want them to have foundation, but then I don't, I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? What are your thoughts on steering the conversation towards the Lord? Literally, that's a really good root beer float did you guys know that the goodness of god has allowed us to consume this root beer float and um, we're image bearers and we've cultivated the earth and we've learned to churn this and and, <clears throat> and they're like oh cool dad this is a really good root beer float
0: <laughs> um
2: yeah i don't know i guess the like one of the formative experiences for me when i was still relatively young in my faith was spending time at Lubri. And so I spent two summers at the Rochester Labrie in Minnesota. And what's so interesting about Labrie is you're kind of talking about faith in Jesus and Christianity all the time, but it's never really feels forced. Part of that's unique to Labrie because if you're at Labrie in the first place, it's because you're thinking through really big issues and you're in a place where you want to be talking about that stuff all the time and so yeah like it doesn't have to be forced because it occurs naturally
0: yeah
2: um but I think part of it also I mean I've been thinking about this as I'm like trying to fundraise for the magazine
0: Mm -hmm.
2: so that I I'm doing that full-time right now I have been for four months I'd like to be able to keep doing it (laughs) full-time um And as I fundraise for it, I just think back on my time at Labrie, and Labrie doesn't fundraise at all. Mm -hmm. Um, They're on kind of the George Mueller model, where you just pray and ask God to provide what you need and trust that He will, and that's what they do. And I think that that model for life introduces a certain kind of existential edge to the faith. where you're just more cognizant of your constant need for God Mm. and also more cognizant of the ways that God provides for your needs. Mm. Like something Mark Sayers talks about in the new book he just had come out, Non-Anxious Presence, is that what the post-World War II Western world, kind of the American century, what that world promised to people was basically a life of stability, ease, peace, and comfort delivered to them by markets and liberalism and democracy. Mm -hmm. And you didn't really need God because you had markets and you had liberalism and you had democracy. And those things bring all these blessings to you that you, relatively speaking, don't have to do that much work to receive. Um, And what I think we're coming to now as we seem to be exiting that historical moment Mm -hmm. is, a lot of those existential needs are starting to press in on people more, um, whether it's because of COVID or because of economic uncertainty or just challenging family situations as families are divided. Mm -hmm. Um, That kind of aura of ease and stability and comfort that was just kind of taken for granted as like the normal experience of the world for a long time, for a lot of people, I think, that's starting to crack and break for people. Mm -hmm. And so what I hope comes out of that is that there's more of us, like, outside of Labrie, Mm -hmm. um, and outside of a small number of Christians I've known that live this way, that really do live with that constant awareness. Mm -hmm. Like, my every breath I'm given is a gift by God Mm -hmm. um, that I did not work for, but it's given to me by God. God has provided for our family's needs in the past in X, Y, and Z ways, and so we're going to trust Him in the future. Um, but yeah, so I think that's the that's just kind of what I absorbed via osmosis while I was at Labrie. Um Atmosphere, like Charlotte Mason would talk about, how atmospheres you, you catch an atmosphere the way you catch a cold, um, and wow. I felt just caught a lot of the atmosphere at Libri. Ooh, that's good. And so it just kind of, it's just the way I think about things now. Um, and so, yeah, I guess I don't think it. maybe I should think more about steering more conversations explicitly toward the Lord. I don't know. Um, but it was there, I guess that just wasn't really a question that came up a lot in an environment like Labrie. Um, and Libri was just so foundational for me that it's, I don't know that I'll ever outgrow it or something
1: like that. No, I'm with you. Yeah. That, that, that culture is caught, not taught. I, I love that. That's what we try to set up our, at our house is just the culture of like, yeah, you might not understand what, you know, what the preacher's preaching, but right now, Mm -hmm. but you know what our family does? We gather, you know, we gather with the saints you know, our church is a Korean church, and we eat Korean food every Sunday, that's what's up, so, you know, what you were saying about the post-World War II or whatever, it reminded me of something you said in the book, and it was so good, I totally cut and paste it and sent it to my, my family group thread without quoting you, sorry, <laughs> and it was something like, that's right, a while, it was a while ago, it was something like, oh, it was really good, man, it was like, what was it like rejecting the Bible is not just like rejecting, you know, like inerrancy or something like that. Do you kind of remember what I'm talking, you remember this section? A little bit. Where you're basically saying, (laughs) it was like the first half of the book. I'm trying to remember where it was, but you basically said, most people think like to reject the Bible is just be like, oh, I don't believe that Jesus is the King. You know, I I don't believe I'm a sinner. I don't, it's these high level, rejections of just like God and you know just like atheism if you will but you were making this point that there's a lot of people who are re- rejecting the Bible and rejecting a lot of aspects of Christianity if you will like mm-hmm. sort of turning a blind eye I'm not sure if that triggered memory or at least opened up yeah, yeah yeah
2: no it's it's just in the intro um, like one of the things that I'm trying to say I'm working on an essay now for Miro about this actually mm. is that I think it's not wrong to talk about the ways in which America is a Christian country or we have Christian culture and things like that. There's specific ways in which I think that's an accurate way of describing who we are and what our history is. I think it's actually also very illuminating in certain kind of contemporary debates. Um, But the thing that I struggle with is there's often this way of talking about these questions as if the black church doesn't exist, as if all all of the horrifying racial history we have doesn't exist. Um, And the Christianity that we've had in this country has to a large degree, not universally, but to a large degree, always found ways of accommodating itself to really horrifying evil um, where Christianity actually speaks very clearly to that question. Um, but the, Ameri- the white American church, especially has found ways of kind of contriving parts of life that are cut off from the claims of revelation. So Wendell Berry has a really striking perceptive discussion of this when he's talking about kind of the imagined experience of a white slave owner attending church with his slaves Mm. on a Sunday morning in the Antebellum South. um, There are things that he's going to profess to believe as part of that liturgy that everything about his life contradicts. Mm -hmm. So the only way to maintain that kind of dissonance is to contrive these artificial buffers that exist between this part of my life and what God has said. (laughs) And so you have to maintain that space because if that part of your life and the claims of Christ ever actually came into contact, Mm. it would be explosive um, because it would be so disruptive. And I think you can apply that kind of critique to our nation's history with slavery and Jim Crow up to now with mass incarceration you could apply it to this is more the issue in my part of Nebraska, to so Native American concerns. Mm-hmm. Um, you can also apply it to wealth. You know, Like historically speaking, it's not in any way controversial to say that the church has historically taught that you don't have an absolute right to your own property. You have a right to private property, but it's not absolute. It's qualified by your neighbor's right to eat to have shelter um this is just the historic church's position whether you're reading the Cappadocian fathers or augustine or thomas or calvin or bootser or luther it's just the position and yet if you say that even today in churches a lot of people will get mad and they'll start calling you a marxist mm. um as has happened to me many times now <laughs> um I'll get called a Marxist for doing an interview where I explicitly say you have a right to private property, which is really funny. Um, But we just resist applying the faith to certain areas of our life where we're just really comfortable and we like things the way they are. And let's not rock the boat too much. Um, And yet that's not really the way Christian discipleship works. (laughs) So I've got the listeners of this podcast,
1: I've got the flaming libs who <laughs> like the God has breasts to like, just the conservative, just already pissed off at this interview. <laughs> so I thought this is a, this is a good time to do this. So when I asked you the question of like, you know, I don't know, maybe it's blind spots or something. One of the first things you went, you brought up like race. <laughs> so everyone's probably thinking, oh, oh, that's where we're going with this you know, we're going with race. Why not? Why isn't the low hanging fruit theological soundness or, I mean, you eventually got to like, you know, wealth or, or whatever. So can you, why, why would, why do you go there? You know, this isn't like a defense question. Why, why for the conservative guy who was annoyed with that response? Why, why do you think the conservative guys are annoyed with that response because he's probably thinking, Hey man, that that's like, that's old news. You know, there's this old minor threat song called guilty of being white. That's an old punk rock song, right? He's like, I'm sorry for something I didn't do. And I've only served 18 years of my time. So pissed off liberal guys like, man, that's not me. I'm not racist or whatever. Um, The the non-white person listening to this is probably like man it's about about freaking time let's (laughs) let crap let's let let it be shouted from the rooftop so yeah
2: oh man i i don't like speculating as to motivations or what's going on in a person's heart when they hear something um that's between them and god um as to i so i think there's a few reasons that the conversation about race has become pretty difficult, pretty toxic in a lot of ways at this point. Um, I think one is that, like one, one of the problems we have right now in the US is we have this thing called negative polarization, which means that people basically become more polarized as a way of differentiating themselves, repudiating, the opposite, they're political opposites. Yeah. So we kind of radicalize each other. Yep. Um, and part of that radicalizing each other is also that we actually geographically self-segregate um, to the point that you, you can pretty clearly designate, like even if you were here in Lincoln, I could drive you around town and basically describe the politics of whole neighborhoods to you in more or less accurate ways. Um, One of the functions of that is that we don't talk to people whose experiences are different than ours very often. And so white folks that don't have experiences of being treated poorly by police officers, for example, or being profiled in a store and having a clerk follow them around the store, um, those kind of things, they've never had that experience. None of their friends have ever had that experience. How could you possibly say that? And and so there's just, there's very little ability to imagine an experience other than your own um, because your day-to-day life doesn't really require that of you. Yeah. Like one of the things, I'm really grateful. I got to spend the time I did when I was in Zambia in Southern Africa, because I went about a month without seeing another white dude. And it was just a very striking experience. Now the power dynamics are still very different. Um, because I was clearly like American or Canadian or something. And so there was an assumption from many people that I had a level of wealth I actually didn't have. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's not the same thing as the experience of being a racial minority in America. But it was the experience of I'm walking around with the constant awareness of being an outsider in some sense. and so that was something that I, I kind of learned what that was like wow. um, in a very, very limited, very protected way. Hmm. But I think a lot of people don't have access to those kind of experiences or to relationships that allow them to hear about other people who have those experiences. And so when we argue about these things, we kind of are both arguing with these realities in our head that aren't reconcilable. And we feel very attacked, I think, as a result. And so that creates a lot of dissent and anger and division. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the ways I've been thinking about some of the stuff we wanna write at O is I wanna write about race in America as if the typical experience that many people of color have had of this country doesn't need to be proven or validated any more than we would ask that of some white person describing their experience of America. So I think simply giving people opportunity to hear about experiences of the nation that are unlike theirs, Um, at least 10 years ago, I think a lot of us thought that would be helpful. I I worry that now maybe it's too late, but I I do still think there's value in that. Um, That's one answer. That's kind of the safer answer. The other answer that's a little bit harder, but I, I think I would be negligent if I didn't raise the issue, is that if it is true that America is historically a country that has been marked in many ways throughout our history by gross racial injustice, um, we should expect that there will still, that that will still apply today in some ways. And so, I mean, think about anytime anyone is confronted with their sin, um, we don't like that. We don't like being confronted with our sin. And so there's inherent defensiveness we feel and ways of lashing out and justifying ourselves and rationalizing bad behavior. Um, and all of these things that I think if you're white in America, you, you kind of learn growing up because you're growing up in a country with a history of gross racial injustice. Um, so I think those things play a role in how racial issues um, have become toxic. Um, I also think that almost everybody is working from the idea that uh, reality is basically whatever we say it is or whatever we have the power to make it be. And so when you're working from that idea, I mean, it's Justice Kennedy's line about how central to the idea of liberty is the right to define your own concept of meaning and existence in the universe and so on and so forth. Um, If that's the belief that you're working from, and I think the overwhelming majority of Americans of both political stripes are working from that belief, um, that actually leaves very little commonly held ground where we can reason with one another. Like one of the reasons I want to cov- recover a really thick conception of nature in the book is because if you have a thick conception of nature, um, that's something that, okay, we both agree that X is a real thing or X is true. <laughs> we have a starting point for reasoning about something. Um, but our discussions have become so unmoored from nature, um, and so much about power that there's a very little that's held in common that's left that allows for more fruitful conversation
1: i listened to or i mean you you know of vincent bacote
0: mm-hmm. and
1: i he, you know you sound a lot like what he's saying which and his you know that's reassuring <laughs> he's basically just saying we just need to talk to one another I like that. I like these, we got to start having conversation and knowing knowing what the other guy's feeling and their life experience and just, you know, Mm -hmm. and and that, I like that. Now I'm wondering, so I I live here in Hawaii and and I like you, this is one of the very few people who could experience what it is like to be an outsider um, because I'm a white guy and I'm definitely the minority here. And and it's called Stink Eye. Hold oh, bro, they give you Stink Eye. I get Stink Eye a lot because I'm literally on their land. and the Kingdom of Wise was overthrown. It's it's a it's a really, it's a really sad, sad, sad story. And so yeah. I actually and it wasn't that long ago, it's kind of fresh, you know, and I'm and it's yeah. still like so it's now it's like illegally occupied. It's actually kind of crazy. And I'm always like, ooh, I like sort of cringe. I'm like, oh, this is. You know, I always feel that way. I even want to wear a shirt that says, I'm sorry, like in Hawaii. you know, but but yet here I am, whatever. I don't know. That's a whole nother thing. So um, I kind of know what it feels like and it, it sucks. So I would love, for example, if there was a a Hawaiian guy saying, come on, you guys, stop being, you know, racist essentially or whatever, stop it. But then there's some like super... <laughs> Super legit Hawaiian people who are like, they're not like freedom fighters for the Howleys. I'm the Howley means no breath, right? The white people, um, they're not like trying to get us all squared away, but they're not part of the problem. You know, you, you see what I'm saying? So my question for you is, I'm, I'm applying that context to like half these listeners right now who are like, dude, why why are we talking about race? Why is this? Why like you know to a hammer everything's a nail and and most people are thinking like liberal Christianity, we're always talking about race and then like LGBT thing. Mm-hmm. So why, why is this the thing that, why is this the thing we're like, we're talking about right now?
2: Um, well, so, I mean, one of the points that I make in the book is actually that the kind of quintessential <laughs> move that gets made to justify a lot of the horrifying racial stuff that happens in American history is actually the same kind of move that these days is used to defend things like abortion and gay marriage. Um, In both cases, what's happening is you're getting an individual who is placing themselves at the center and they're reducing everything around them to matter, um, to stuff that they can shape and remold and make and modify to suit their desire, their ambition, their internal sense of what they want, what they ought to be. Um, and so whether it's a Spanish conquistador who is striding into the new world and looking at like long-standing indigenous cultures and ways of life and ways of relating to the land um, and only seeing stuff to make himself powerful and wealthy and exalt his king, or it's more contemporary Western people, mostly progressives who look at an unborn child and think it's not really an unborn child. It, I don't owe anything to it by virtue of its existence or look at the design of the body and see it as a thing that's kind of indifferent and can be modified to suit our desires, our ambitions. Um, what I'm trying to say is, no, your neighbor, your neighbor, um, the wildlife in your home place, even the plant life, the the creation itself, all of this has a kind of, um, Mm -hmm. Willie Jennings uses the phrase ontological density about it. Um, It's not just stuff, Um, it's made by God. It's made by God and called good Mm -hmm. by God. Mm -hmm. Um, And so because of that, it's a kind of a sacrilege for you to reduce it to something less than that mm. and so that's a kind of argument that's going to cut across political stripes um mm-hmm. or political division divisions um because what i'm saying is y- you don't get to just say that reality is whatever you think it is reality is this fixed thing made mm-hmm. by god um produced by the power of his word and sustained by the power of his providential hand over the world. And you are given this terrible responsibility of living in the world um, with the potential to participate in that creative work or to desecrate it, to tear it down, to destroy it. And whether you're choosing to destroy it by destroying landscapes, you're choosing to destroy it by destroying the unborn, it's wicked. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's part of the reason I wanna recover this really thick conception of nature. Not only does it give us some common ground for reasoning, but I think it also forces us to a way of imagining the world. Pope Francis talks about a throwaway culture um, or John Paul II would talk about a culture of death. I think when we recover a robust conception of the natural, it's an important step to rebuilding a culture of life. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I, I don't want to only talk about one injustice or another all the time. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about justice. And because I want to talk about justice, I'm going to talk about what is owed to people who have been victims of injustice for centuries, mm-hmm. in country. Um, but that's not all I'm gonna talk about when I wanna talk about justice, because justice is giving to another what they are due. And there are all sorts <laughs> of ways that this country denies justice to people besides just our racial evils. Mm-hmm. I mean, however great those are, there are other, yeah. So it's... So what are, if,
1: okay, so like if we're hitting, so far sort of touching on like racial evils and then, um, being wanton. I forgot your language, but being wanton with creation or minimizing it or being so removed, you have no sense of like place or whatever. So if these are, can you give two for the listener, like two bullet points, like, okay, here's, here's the diagnosis on the race part. Here's the diagnosis on, uh, on the place part. And here's a very practical application, because as a side note, I was, the book surprised me because a lot of it was diagnosis. I wasn't ready for that. I thought it was gonna be a different book. Hmm. And I liked it, you, you're like a historian big time, by the way,
0: <laughs> your stories
1: are good, you're good, suck me in, man. The story of your dad got me crying like a baby. I was like, oh my gosh, and he pulled through. I couldn't believe that, brother, anyways. Can you hit us with the double, like the the one liner diagnosis for each, and then one liners like, okay, chumps, let's do this.
2: That's all. That's all you're asking. (laughs) Um, Do it in Latin, please. Oh, even better. (laughs) Um, Well, (laughs) all verbs says that when the righteous prosper the city rejoices the idea there is that when we submit ourselves to God's way of living in the world um, we're aligning ourselves with the way reality actually works and so our lives work better now this isn't a prosperity gospel thing it's not automated or guaranteed we live in a fallen world and horrible things happen Um, but the world is meant to work a certain way. Mm. And we should try to live in a way that agrees with that rather than a way that runs against the grain. I mean, think about when you cut against the grain when you're working with a piece of wood. Um, So I think the thing I would wanna say with place and also with neighbor is the same. It's that you are surrounded by sacred, holy things that God loves. And so if you live in a way that doesn't recognize that, doesn't honor that. Um, so how my on the di- like nitty gritty style?
1: My, like my, my dad, right? I don't think he has any like non, he doesn't have many friends, but I don't think he has any, for example, any non-white friends. He's not like racist, and but he, you know, he just got a few friends and he's just sort of living his life. Is he busted? Should he get busy? What should he concern himself with? And also as far as place, is there, is it safe to assume that where he might be off a little bit? When I say he, I'm just saying him representing just sort of most folks out there.
2: Um. I would say you you start with wherever God has put you. Um, I I think if, so like Lincoln is 85% white. Now, if you go up to Omaha, Omaha is a different story, but Lincoln is 85% white. Realistically, most churches here will be predominantly white, just because that's most of the city's population. I don't think there needs to be this like self lacerating hatred that defines all of these churches because they're failing to be like sufficiently diverse racially. Like Keller's principle, I think it's a good one, is you should aspire to be as diverse as the city you're in or the neighborhood you're in. Um, And so I think like start with where you are and like look for the things where you are that can be addressed to try and make them more faithfully reflect god's intention for the world Mm -hmm. so like i I think i said this already but like in this part of nebraska um native american affairs are more of a live issue in some ways Mm -hmm. than african-american issues Mm -hmm. omaha is its own thing but in most of this state the place where a lot of the racial evil is seen most clearly is how we treated native americans Mm. um and so i think like if you were thinking about that issue that's more live issue in lincoln anyway Mm. but i also think like just getting like local and recognizing like where is there mistrust in our city what's Mm. behind that where is there mistrust in my neighborhood or in my church Mm. um like i think if we were starting from a place of like let's build trust with one another that's mm. that's something anybody can do yeah, um, and you know one of the ways you can you can build trust is you you can educate yourself about various issues so that you're able to talk about them with greater sensitivity and intelligence mm. Mm. Uh, like i've done some reading and i've also benefited from talking with my parents about History in Nebraska that helps me understand why some things are the way they are. And I think it helps me talk about that in a more engaging, sensitive way than I would without that information. Mm. So I think being curious, uh, beginning with a posture of, of almost like, I mean, Schaefer would talk about the nobility of our neighbor. Mm. Um, so in that sense, almost a posture of reverence toward your neighbor and toward. The world god's made i think if, if you're starting with those postures then you're going to be better positioned to roll with whatever hard issues you confront locally based on where god's called you
1: so was it rook i think it was rook who said like he might have said what are christians for or he said like why are you you know why are you saved or whatever hmm. i
2: didn't know that, I did that from him
1: oh yeah 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 he would say i think he would say what are christians for and it would like blow the minds of everyone they're like oh crap that's <laughs> a simple question are we allowed to, aren't we And like uh oh, massive we're for massive evangelism right
0: yeah. <laughs> that's what a lot
1: that's what a lot of people would like a lot of that's what i grew up thinking we're the the christian life is to snatch as many people as we can from the fires of hell and like sin management that's what i thought you know christianity was about when we read your book um there's like the there's a lot of good diagnosis there on like you said neighbor and place and sort of politics i think what you did is you like sort of like open uh it it make it makes it causes people to just sort of think like okay i need to be thinking about other things it's not so much piety as piety as like spirituality um as like praying or whatever so all that to say is um he would say christianity is for to and something like you said earlier i said like to make you fully human you know and then i think i think he also said like living like you said living in the with the grain of the universe and so all that to say is like what are you telling your kids what are Christians for? Or, you know, what, I mean, what, what's a Christian for? What are we for?
2: <laughs> um, the simplest answer is the glory of God and the love of our neighbor. Um, what that looks like varies from place to place a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think we're probably entering a season where there's going to be more scarcity than there has been for a lot of people for a while now in recent history um sayers talks about kind of the difference of living in a society of abundance versus a society of scarcity mm. how that changes the way people experience needs it changes some of the things that people are looking for as they go about their days um i think we're probably beginning a season of scarcity in mm. a lot of parts of the world now um, for a lot of reasons. You look at supply chain disruptions that are still ongoing because of issues with shipping in China. You look at probably some pretty intense famine in parts of the world because of Ukraine and Russia. You look at the economic uncertainty we have, particularly in America right now. Um, I think there's a lot of factors. We haven't even talked about climate change. That's gonna affect a lot of these things. Um, And so I think particularly in a culture like that um, Christians are there to remind their neighbors of what they're made for and they're not made to have good feelings all the time and chase good experiences that give them good feelings all the time. Um, You are made to know God and yet you carry the burden and stain of sin about you. And so knowing God is difficult and following God is difficult. Um, and yet we know that through Christ, um, like through his work on our behalf, and then with the aid of the Holy Spirit and the aid of the church and the aid of the, aid of the sacraments, um, God gives us what we need to be reunited to him. And so we can kind of throw open the windows as it were and remind people what they're made for in a world where I think a lot of people are going to be needing to hear that message pretty soon. I mean, they, they already need to hear it, but I think we're, we're hitting a point in terms of the difficulties that a lot of people are going to be facing where that, that news is going to be, the the need for that news is going to be felt on a deeper existential level, I think for a lot of people.
1: So you guys could go to jakemedor.com. So J A K E M E A D O R.com. And the book is what are Christians for you? Get, and of course you could go to mere orthodoxy and you guys are trying to get trying to get print, trying to get print alive and well. What's the, what's the motivation there as we close out?
2: Um, I think it's a way of helping us grow beyond just being on the internet, mm. uh, being internet media, you can kind of get sucked into a lot of ephemera when you're dealing with print, you're dealing with something that, is a little bit more permanent. It requires a little more planning and forethought. Um, It allows you to say more kind of normative things instead of reactive things. Oh, wow. So I've really enjoyed it. I've been kind of discovering all of the things I like about it as we go. Um, But like one of the things is it just allows us to be able, like we just had an issue on nationalism Mm. come out. Like it allows us to say a lot of different things about what it means to belong to a nation. Um, mm. the next issue is going to allow us to be able to say a lot of things about work and prayer because that's the theme um, and so it feels like a way for us to kind of set the agenda for what we want to be talking about mm. rather than just getting sucked into whatever the topic of the day is on twitter
1: good so. brother thanks for your time thanks for the book I commend it to the listeners because um, I know I think you were trying to do there's something about history or just like looking around that is that's helpful and and that's where I got sort of the most help I started like I guess you're sort of you're not navel gazing you know making sure you're saved but you're like where where am I where am I a little where some blind spots or whatever where can I you know where, where's the we Lord came. calling me to, like, be a Christian and not a chump? <laughs> so anyways, we will thanks go. for your time, brother. Many mahalos. We came for salvation. We came for family. We came for all that's good. That's how we'll walk away. We came to break the bad. Cheer the sad We came to